This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh, Kurt, fresh this week and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspectives on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here with you, Kurt, my co-host. How are you today? Hey, it's good to be with you. I like to focus on fresh. That's that's, that's right. where we're going today for sure. It's been a while since you and I did a Chris and Kurt only episode. So everybody buckle up. We're going to yeah, have or a apologies to listeners. I don't know which way to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, there's been an awful lot happening lately and we've been you know, privileged to have some great guests on recently from some different industry associations who are talking about some of the policy priorities they're focusing on in their roles or within their organizations. But while we're having those conversations, there's a lot happening in the background, you know, at the SEC, in the securities regulatory space. So we wanted to just take an episode, talk about some of the things that we are, that we are following. And the way that we thought we would do this is, we would each choose one big thing that we're focusing on and with very, very limited insight into the other person's thing, just kind of take on those topics. So that's what we're gonna do. We've got one accounting topic, we've got one legal topic, and we're gonna, we're gonna just take them on. We won't ask listeners to pick your favorite because I already know what your answers will be. I think, Kurt, are we doing a randomized spinning wheel on the internet to figure out who's going to go first? Yeah, so I've got a wheelofnames.com up here. And it's basically just a wheel. Not a sponsor yet. No, no, no. It says Chris Kurt, Chris Kurt, Chris Kurt, Chris Kurt. So we're we're going to spin the wheel. Yeah, right. We're going to get some sound effects here in the background from our crew over at PLI, and we will see. So get ready. Here we go. It is spinning, spinning. Naturally, it's Chris. All right. (laughs) This is fun. So here we go. Deep dive into whether you're an attorney, whether you're an accountant, you know, whether you're just a, a lay person, you know, walking down the street, you have probably heard someone talking about the recent statements from acting chief accountant at the SEC, Paul Muntner, in a speech titled The Auditor's Responsibility for Fraud Detection. We're recording this on, on November 1st. The speech came out about three weeks ago. Paul Muntner's comments really made waves in the accounting and auditing world for a couple of reasons. And I'd encourage all of you to, to take a look at the comments themselves if you're interested in, in the accounting world and the you know professional liability space, as well as you know financial markets and, and financial statements generally. Kurt, you know, this is kind of a, a high line topic, the auditor's responsibility for fraud detection. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard about this one. We've chatted a little bit about it. It it's not just auditors and accountants talking mm-hmm. about this, Chris. It, you know, folks. It's everyone. Members. Yeah, People it's everybody. People at the grocery store. You know. Well, let's not get carried away. <laughs> it's not that. It's not that fresh. But no, I mean, it is. It is a big deal. There were some ripple effects. Lots of people are talking about it. There's been the usual wave of client alerts and other things. So I think this is a great topic for us to discuss Definitely. today. But you know, sort of before we get into you know Paul Munter's comments about you know, the auditor's responsibility for fraud detection. Let's just take a step back and tell me a little bit about the, the auditor's role here. I mean, what are the what are the expectations for an auditor who's in there looking around, trying to figure out if there is any fraud afoot? Yeah, so there's a few different inputs here that have led to the current environment of responsibility for fraud detection. We did an episode earlier this summer with Professor James Park of the UCLA College of Law talking about Sarbanes-Oxley and being 20 years hence. So we can all look back to the early 2000s and say accounting fraud is bad. That has really changed the auditing landscape, you know, from a a pre-Sarbanes to a post-Sarbanes-Oxley. With that, the creation of the PCAOB, which promulgates auditing standards that are overseen by the SEC. Again, we could do all episodes on the kind of the hierarchy of, of issues around how to be an auditor. But over that time period, there's been a shift from the acceptance of the financial statements and information provided by management to the auditor's responsibility to kick the tires on those, right? And we all agree that mm-hmm. an auditor's responsibility here is to be an independent and objective 
you know, level of assurance around the presentation of the financial statements under the appropriate accounting framework and to, to make an opinion, to make a statement that those are free of material misstatement, right? That's kind of where the auditor's responsibility sits on the whole. In the 20 years since Sarbanes-Oxley, there has been a push, you know, most recently in, in 2013 from the ICPA and the Committee of Sponsoring Organizations to the Treadway Commission or COSO to talk a lot about the role of fraud detection in these auditing procedures. And so it is best encapsulated right now by what we call GAS or generally accepted auditing standards. Use section 316 from the PCAOB talks about the consideration of fraud in a financial statement audit. And there's really five different elements of financial statement, five different elements of fraud consideration in that financial statement audit. The first is getting a good baseline of the description and characteristics of fraud. What makes up fraud? What types of issues should an auditor be aware of as they review individual procedures, individual pieces of financial information around the client that they're auditing? The second is this buzzword, Kurt, I know you've heard a thousand times, professional skepticism. You know, yep. it can generally be saying, you know, having a questioning mind as you're performing your auditing procedures, not just taking what you see in front of you at face value, considering that critically, thinking about ways that that information could be misleading or potentially omitting something valuable to, to the auditor and to the financial markets at large. The third being a response to fraud risks, which sometimes involves you know, performing an assessment of fraud risk relating to a business. If it's a, a business that concentrates a lot of its transactions in cash, that will have a lot of fraud risks that are unique versus a non-cash business. Uh, thinking about things at a high level like that, about what risks might we see here for fraud. The fourth responsibility, communicating fraud to management, the audit committee, and others. An external auditor is required to have discussions with the executives of the client about potential fraud issues or, or how they're seeing risks of fraud in existence at the client, as well as making sure the audit committee is informed on those decisions as well. And then finally, you know what we talk about a lot in professional liability, documenting the auditor's consideration of fraud. So there needs to be work papers prepared in conjunction with the audit that describe in detail, excruciating detail in some respects, all of those things the auditor has done to consider fraud risk. So that's kind of a brief overview. Again, I'd, I'd encourage you to read through the general accepted auditing standards for a little bit more detail on that. But that's the expectation is that throughout the audit, both in the planning phase, the execution phase, and in the reporting phase as well, there be a discussion point, a set aside time, a specific interview for fraud related ideas. Yeah, interesting. I mean, so those I think those five responsibilities or guiding principles are, are important. You know, if I heard you, they are gathering information, maintaining professional skepticism, responding to fraud risks, communicating to management, and documenting your findings, right? I mean, it's interesting. I kind of think about my job in the same, in the same way sometimes, yep. if, especially if I'm doing an internal investigation. But I mean, tell me this. Are the expectations, are the responsibilities any different if you are an in-house auditor versus an external auditor that gets paid to come in and consult or you know look around, kick the tires? Very much so. And they're both an administration versus execution, right? An internal auditor is not an independent, objective you know, reviewer of financial information. They're employed by an organization and in many cases to kick the tires on the financial performance of specific departments or of processes or, or product lines, as well as compliance with policies and procedures throughout the organization. You know, they're what we call the third line of defense, if you will, in an organization. So they are neither independent nor objective, but internal auditors through the Institute of Internal Auditors, which puts out a lot of the guidance and, and policies around how to be a good internal auditor, they're encouraged to consider fraud you know, as with with other professions and as with external auditors, you know, that that COSO framework I talked about a little bit earlier, that is the guiding principles for internal audit work. And there is a fraud consideration standalone idea for internal auditors as well. So an internal auditor may be checking on the company's compliance with a specific policy or procedure. And in that exercise, that audit of that compliance, they should be considering with professional skepticism whether or not this there are individuals who may be purposefully non-complying or hiding their lack of compliance and what the risks might be there. That again is all internal information. You know, that is so the business can move forward in a way that's meaningful and actualizes on the objectives of the organization and the internal auditors are there to ensure that that, that management is getting 
information about those policies, those procedures, those operations that help them make decisions internally. The external auditors, right, are, are much more in duty to the markets, if you will, than individual management. They are there to independently and objectively review the financial information and make sure that it is free of material misstatement or if they're going to provide that type of opinion. So it is a little bit of nuance. I mean, Kurt, we've talked a little bit about how people throw the A word around. Everything is an audit. Obviously, in this case, it's very specific about the role of an internal and an external auditor. But generally speaking, if you're performing an accounting function or you're performing an audit function, whether internal or external, there is a standard there, whether from the PCAOB externally or the Institute of Internal Auditors and and COSO internally to consider fraud. Okay. Yeah. So that's helpful to understand how you maybe look at this through slightly different lenses, depending on what seat you're sitting in. That's right. I think, you know, at this point, I, I at least have a pretty good understanding of what the expectations are, how you as an auditor should think about fraud detection, the types of things that you're looking for should be doing. But I gather that at least Paul Hunter thinks there's a breakdown somewhere with some auditors or some firms. So tell me, tell me about that. What are the issues, the problems, the shortcomings, whatever we want to call them? What's he seeing out there in the market that is giving him cause for concern? Yeah, I think the shortest answer to that question, Kurt, is that even though auditors have a responsibility for fraud detection, the PCAOB and the SEC consistently over the years are dishing out penalties and and sanctions around audit firms for not detecting fraud. There are a myriad of examples over the past decade of of audit firms that have come out and settled with the the commission after a company is found to have Mm. fraudulently presented their financial statements. And not to put words in, in acting Chief Muntner's mouth, but the proof is really in the pudding, right? If enough companies are still fraudulently representing their financial position and those audits are getting a clean opinion, and we're finding out later that that audit should not have got a clean opinion, then yeah. you know, it, it goes to reason that the auditors are not you know, thinking critically enough about, about fraud. And Acting Chief Muntner really puts a lot of discussion in his remarks around the best way to say kind of defenses that audit firms usually fall back on, right? And one we've talked about a bit on the podcast before is materiality, right? If, if you're a multi-billion dollar company and you find a $5,000 fraud in a specific department, Mm -hmm. That is generally accepted to not be something that you need to disclose specifically or, you know, obviously facts and circumstances will differ in those types of of issues. But the the defenses that auditors usually come out with are, you know, the the fraud issue was immaterial or, you know, we were also, you know, provided with, you know, information that, you know, covered up the fraud or omitted key parts of this. So we're not liable either. And I think, you know, acting Chief Muntner's position is really that that's not good enough. Right. There needs to be a stronger position from an auditor to consider fraud in all of its aspects for a financial statement audit so that there are less. Right. Again, going back to the proof is in the pudding so that there are less of these sanctions and enforcements around audit firms getting in in trouble for this. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I saw an article just within the last couple of days in The Wall Street Journal that was talking about how the PCAOB under Erica Williams has really ramped up its own enforcement actions. We've talked a little bit about that mm-hmm. on, on the podcast before. That would indicate to me that what you're saying, Chris, is is right, that, that this is happening out there in the market. The SEC and PCAOB are focusing on it and enforcement is, is going up. So, I mean, what's a firm to do, right? I mean, are there are there recommendations in this particular speech or, or other things that you think auditors should be thinking about? Yeah, and Acting Chief Muntner's comments are really around starting with the perception of accuracy and truth in the, in the financial information being provided is something that auditors are on a spectrum of, right? If you're, if you're receiving mm-hmm. standard documentation that you, you know, you've tested internal controls under SOX 404 and you think that you know, this process, this information is coming out well, that's a position that auditors really need to maybe take off their confirmation bias. Let's make sure that you know, we, we agree with everything we're seeing here to make sure that we can get to the same opinion and really start from the bottom of that professional skepticism totem pole and say, right. how would we take this in a vacuum, right? We're seeing a, an anomaly here, even though we tested controls and they're okay. And even though we've done some analytical procedures here, we've identified two or three anomalies. Again, to, to add a colloquialism to it, let's not sweep those under the rug. Let's let's really investigate that type of, of information because that may be mm-hmm. where we see some cracks in the in the client's ability to produce 
reasonable explanations for why these anomalies are occurring and then, you know, peeling back layers of the onion to get to something much larger from a fraud perspective. And again, this is by no means a knock on the audit profession, right? Many, many right. companies and auditors walk away from audits, have have tough conversations with management about their financial presentation. You know, these things are happening on a regular basis. I think the acting chief accountant's statements are really about that changing the professional skepticism conversations and maybe being a little bit more forward in questioning management's presentation. Not that that, that management has done anything wrong, but really getting to those issues quickly and efficiently to make sure that things can, can be taken care of. And again, getting those enforcement numbers down. Yeah, I think that's a good point that this isn't a knock on the audit profession mm -hmm. or auditors, right? If we think about this in other contexts, Every year, the SEC's Division of Examinations and every year FINRA, you know, they put out their exam priorities or findings from the examinations that they've conducted throughout the year. And they say, here are some things that we find firms aren't getting quite right, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a knock against broker dealers broadly or investment advisors. It's just saying, hey, you guys have a lot of compliance obligations. Some of them are thorny. Some of them are difficult. Here is some things that you can learn from the industry, right? So I would think about this speech in that light, mm -hmm. right? There, there are things that, that folks can do better. Here, here's how. So I guess I'm wondering, it's only been, like you said, a, a few weeks but do you think after these remarks, firms kind of started doing a self-check and saying, are the things we need to do better? Are they making you, Chris, tune into a bunch of lunch and learns to make sure you've got <laughs> your, your A game? What, what's happening? To me, it's hard to see right now, right? We're only a couple of weeks out. I know a lot more conversations have happened around this. What, what I'm hopeful of is that the first or second year audit staff or, or the new supervisor or manager on, on a large public company audit will will have the the presence of mind to consider these things a little bit differently. You know, all of the mm -hmm. partners at the major audit firms and, and even, you know, some of the, the top 100, top 200 audit firms are going to be up on this. They're going to make sure their documentation's in order. But it's really that frontline communication that I think is most important for maybe yeah. a shift, right? It might be hard if you're four years out of school and you're reviewing the the treasury, you know, you're performing an audit over the, the treasury function and you see one or two things that are, again, immaterial. I'm doing air quotes for our listeners out there, but maybe <laughs> want you to raise some questions questions, I'm hoping that these statements will help embolden that individual to bring that to their manager, bring that to the client and and have a, a frank conversation about what those anomalies might mean. That to me is really where we can get to a better position so that the information is being shared appropriately and that professional skepticism is higher across the board. You know, we knock external audit a lot for not discovering fraud. And, and I think there's a little bit of that sprinkled into acting chief accountant Munder statements. The ACFE does their an, their biannual report to the nations every year. And they're one of the most touted figures is how is fraud initially detected in the cases from the 2022 mm -hmm. study. Number one, Kurt was tips, right? Hey, I saw it happen or, you know, I'm right. a whistleblower and yeah. I'm providing that. Internal audit was actually the second most frequent way that fraud was discovered. So that third line defense is where working well. I will ask you, Kurt, what do you think external audit ranks in on out of the 14 items that are presented in the 2022 report? <laughs> uh, it's not a trick I, question, but it's... I, I mean, I, I don't know. You no, it is not second. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is eighth. Oh, eighth, no. You know, right up, or I mean, three places below my favorite by accident is is the fifth most way that fraud is discovered. So, you know, again, it's a little unfair to to play hindsight here and, and point back to, you know, subterfuge, right? The the intent to defraud comes with the um mm -hmm. with the ability to cover up and and the motivation to cover up, you know, this this bad behavior. So, I don't yeah. I don't I don't want to, you know, beat up on external auditors here, but I think too that seeing that number go up or or again to to acting chief Muntner's point bringing down the enforcement actions around auditors missing fraudulent financial statement issues is really going to be the focus in the next 18 months, the next couple audit cycles. Again, I can't speak to, to Acting Chief uh, Muntner's intentions or timing, but here we are in October. I know you're good at calendars, Kurt. We're rolling into the 2023 audits busy season, right? So this yeah. might be kind of a, a clarion call to auditors out there to yeah. really put their thinking caps on and, and lean into that professional skepticism. Yeah, that that's great. I'm glad that we got a chance to unpack it because, as we said, 
ton of people are talking about it. I guess I, I have to give you the last word. Any, anything else we need to take away from, from either this speech or what you think folks should be thinking about here? I guess one thing I'm looking forward to is if there's a policy response to this. As we've talked about before, Kurt, the accounting world moves so quickly in updating their rules and, and <laughs> responding, to, responding to market changes. But I'm interested if, if the SEC, the PCAOB, or, or you know, the Financial Accounting Standards Board and others involved in, in rulemaking on the accounting side start to bake some of this into upcoming projects and efforts. Again, I, I, I don't know. You know, I think if you've got a, a chief accountant at the SEC making statements about the importance of enhancing these considerations, that we may see some things down the road that bake in some of these ideas. But, you know, time will tell on that. So I'll be looking forward to it. And obviously, I'll make you talk about it, Kurt, on a, on a future episode. So we can be sure to highlight that. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right. With that, then I think we can pivot and and talk about the topic that I brought to the table today. We won't spin the wheel again. No, I wanted to see if it would end up on Kurt or Kurt. So I'm going to take second out of two today. So what what I thought we ought to talk about is this recent focus or, or purportedly recent focus at the SEC on financial advisory firms and broker dealers, their employees' use of text messages, ephemeral messaging apps, and other types of applications or communications that maybe maybe aren't being captured by the firms or maintained by the firms, which, which could be a violation of certain record-keeping requirements. There's been some action in this space recently, which we should talk about, but that's sort of the, the big picture is there are a lot of firms out there that have people you know, who work for them, who have certain record-keeping provisions or responsibilities, and to the extent that they're using text messages and other things, may not be satisfying their compliance obligations. Kurt, I remember I used to work at a consulting firm that also had an investment banking you know, activity. And I remember the investment mm-hmm. banking guys had to make sure they were always on a recorded line. They had a separate chat function internal to the firm to when they were conducting business around the investment banking clients. Yeah. And I think that might be a similar rule, you know, or a similar record keeping activity. But before we get into the enforcement action and, and kind of the, the breadth of the sweep itself, you know, why is this coming up now? What is the, the germination of this? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And in a sense, I mean, you're not you're not wrong, Chris. I mean, for for a long time Let's be sure we we cut that out and we can replay that as often as we want. <laughs> you're not you wrong. Know, for a long Chris. time this this was easier, right? If you you were, you know, working on the Muni desk at, you know, at a firm, those lines were recorded. If you're sitting in your office at, you know, you're a financial advisor sitting in your office, you probably have software where you record communications with your clients throughout the day or some other kind of diary or record keeping device or software. Uh, but but the world is has been changing rapidly, you know, within the last few years, e- you know, even within the last, let's say, three to five years, just in terms of how much people are using different types of messaging applications yep. or other other new technology to communicate just everyday communications right it's it's incredibly incredibly common or pervasive nowadays so you know in, in a sense there's sort of nothing new here right what we're talking about are old record keeping requirements what has changed is technology that said the focus on these types of messaging applications ha- has really i think come into come into focus over the last few years in a couple different contexts. And then we'll talk about what the SEC is doing now. But a couple places where we've seen it, you know, first, the Department of Justice started talking about uh, companies' use or their employees' use of ephemeral messaging applications several years ago. And this was really in the context of, you know, large multinational corruption investigations, FCPA Mm -hmm. investigations. And what DOJ found was a lot of times they would go in and try to figure out what had been going on, you know, piece together some kind of web of relationships or communications. And, you know, kind of like you were saying with the fraud detection, unsurprisingly, the people who were engaging in misconduct were trying to hide their communications, right? right. (laughs) And one way that they did that or that, that DOJ found they were doing that was through these messaging applications that have things like auto delete functions. That's right. That's what I so, want to go back to when you use the word ephemeral. It's kind of those yeah. disappearing messages, you know, very quick turnarounds. You can think of it like an Instagram story, but you're talking yeah. about some some high line issue at a client or, or some trades being made. 
Yeah, exactly. And there are lots of applications you can do to make messages disappear. I think you can do it in WhatsApp. You can do it in Signal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them have that. And so what the Department of Justice said is, look, companies need to think about this. They need to consider whether they need policies and procedures to make sure that if folks are doing business on personal devices, that they don't have auto-delete features set up or that the companies otherwise have a way to get their arms around those communications if we show up at the door with a subpoena and say, you know, we want all communications from X date to Y date relating to whatever. Mm -hmm. That is going to include employee text messages. And so one of the things that they did was amend the Department of Justice's corporate enforcement policy statement to basically say they were going to consider more stringent sanctions if if you weren't doing a good job of capturing those messages. They backed away from that a little bit later, you know, so that they weren't they weren't saying we're going to be quite as hard on you as they initial initially signaled. But the at that point, it was pretty clear that they were focusing on it. And companies should be thinking about how are we approaching this issue? So, you know, as I said, in that sense, there's sort of nothing new here. That, you know, a similar thing has been happening at FINRA over the years. FINRA has very specific record-keeping rules. And as, you know, as far back as 2017, I think they put out a regulatory notice to, to their member firms that focused on how... Um, registered reps were using text messaging applications and other chat services to communicate with their clients. And, you know, at the time, Finner said, as with social media, every firm that intends to communicate or permit its associated persons to communicate with regard to its business through a text messaging app or chat service must first ensure that it can retain records of those communications as required by the rules. So, this has been floating out there for a while. It's been kind of simmering. You know, it's been on mm-hmm. the back burner. We haven't seen a lot of action. But what we have seen in, you know, recent weeks or over the last month and a bit is a is a real focus on this in a big way. Yeah, and I think that that's what I've garnered from the headlines, Kurt, is that this is kind of a new, not a new idea, but this is really kind of the first shot across the bow for these, you know, very large banking institutions and other, you know, trading and, and market participants. Talk to us about the enforcement action and, and what you think of it in terms of, is, is it a landmark or is it is it just the first of many? Yeah, so it's interesting. So there was an enforcement action. It was announced on September 27th and the SEC charged 15 broker dealers and one of the broker dealers affiliated investment advisor for failure to maintain the kinds of records we've been talking about. They referred to them as off-channel or electronic communications text messages, personal email accounts, WhatsApp, things like that. It was a big deal because, again, we have 15 broker dealers plus one other firm or or affiliate. The sanctions were around $1.1 billion, right? Anytime you you start throwing billion around, I think people are going to take note. What I think is interesting is it's it's not actually a first of its kind Hmm. case. If we think about Enforcement actions that are really, SEC enforcement actions that are really focusing on these messaging applications. The first one I think of was actually last December, December 2021, an action against JP Morgan Securities. And that was an SEC case. And they said the exact same thing they said in the press release announcing you know, an action against these 16 firms. They charged JP Morgan for widespread and longstanding failures by the firm and its employees to maintain and preserve written communications. For those violations, JPMS agreed to pay a $125 million penalty and implement what the SEC called robust improvements to its compliance policies and procedures. And, you know, in the press release announcing that that action, the SEC was fairly specific about the types of things they were focusing on. So they said, in particular, that JPMS uh, or, or its employees had failed to maintain messages on their personal devices. And that included text messages, WhatsApp, personal email accounts. So, I mean, it's sort of a, a roadmap. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're a firm operating in this space, what are they looking at? Okay, here it is. Personal devices, personal emails, text, you know, whatever. And then things went quiet for a while in this space until the September action that I was just talking about. Again, 15 firms plus one investment advisor, $1.1 billion in sanctions. All of those firms were also required to implement improvements to their compliance policies and procedures in connection with the settlement. And again, you know, the allegations here, as it was put in the SEC's press release, were that the firm's employees routinely communicated about business matters using text messaging applications on their personal devices 
and the firms did not maintain or preserve those off-channel communications. Yeah, and Kurt, it sounds to me, and I'm interested in your take, this is really kind of you should have known better. You know, you you know that your folks are out there in the field meeting with clients and, and you know, making deals happen and, and performing trades. You know they've all got their own iPhone or their own Android. Are, can you confirm that it's not happening? It sounds to me like just having a policy that says don't do it wasn't enough for these 16 firms that, that the SEC is naming here. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, whenever you're talking about a, a broker-dealers or an investment advisory firm's policies and procedures, there is always this aspect of how are you implementing it? How are you enforcing it? How are you supervising yeah. your employees' compliance with the policy or procedure? And I think you're right here. Maybe it just it just wasn't strong enough. Mm. It, it's difficult because there are a lot of different ways to approach this this particular problem. You know, some firms will say, you know, we will allow our folks to have uh, personal devices, but we have a strict policy. No talking about business on your yes. personal devices, right? And it's it's almost impossible to police that. Some firms will say, you know, we will supply the device and it will come with certain monitoring software, mm -hmm. or maybe you have to, you know, sort of VPN in or something in order to do actual business on the phone. Some firms will will just just have a policy that says we prohibit it, right? So there's just there's a lot of different ways to to think about this, and I'm not sure that any one of them is right. I don't think the SEC mm -hmm. thinks any one of them is right. But the question is, once you decide on a, on a course, how are you going to make sure that you are supervising? How are you going to make sure that you are getting the records that you need to maintain sort of back at the firm so that you know that they're safe? So, I mean, huge dollar value here, but also, you know, a significant portion of the market, right, named in this What's what's been the fallout? What's been the change? And and you know, are you advising your clients or, or clients of your firm on on updating policies, on on changing the way they're going so that they don't have a similar issue going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there was there were a couple reactions to it. I mean, with respect to the broker dealers, I don't think anyone was particularly surprised. Certainly after the J.P. Morgan case yeah. last year, I think a lot of folks were kind of waiting for this other shoe to drop, if you will. You know, I don't think this is the end of it in terms yeah. of, you know, brokerage firms being charged with these types of record keeping violations. But folks have been on notice for a while. And I think this was just, we've heard a lot from the director of enforcement and his deputy about how they want to bring cases with high dollar sanctions or a press release that announces a high dollar sanction to get folks attention to sort of mm -hmm. sharpen their focus on issues that the staff thinks are important. So I think that's a little bit about what's going on here. This isn't the end of the road, but broker dealers probably knew it was coming and have been thinking about this for a while. On the other side, you've got investment advisors, right? And it was it was notable that in this action there was an investment advisor affiliate of one of the firms, one of the brokerage, one of the broker dealers that was also charged with with record keeping and supervision violations under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. What we what we learned or what was reported after this enforcement action is that there is a separate sweep going on in the Division of Enforcement where they are sending letters or requests for information to a lot of investment advisors saying, how are you dealing with this particular problem, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you saw the enforcement action, you know the issues that we're looking at, how are you dealing with text message and personal devices and all these kinds of things. And so I do think that is maybe causing that, that market or industry segment to go in and take take a harder look at the way they've been handling it because it's potentially a huge part of the industry, right? It's not yeah. just the person that you would call for your own, you know, financial advice. It could be, you know, advisors to private funds. It could be investment companies, right? You could sort of capture a lot of different types of entities with that sweep. And so I think the, you know, the fallout there is that a lot of people are running around and saying, oh my gosh, how are we handling this? Does it look anything like that? Do we have a problem? Do yep. we need to you know, rework our policies and procedures. So that's what's happening at the moment. Yeah, I can imagine those requests for information going out, just, you know, the last page just being a, a brief reference to the URL for the SEC's press release related yeah. to this. <laughs> so the firms are not at all, you know, confused about where this might be heading down the road. But it sounds like if, if not a sea change, kind of the an evolution to date, and I'm sure they'll be, be mm -hmm. more focused on this. But, you know, Kurt, when you were talking about, you know, provide us all your communications from X to Y, 
you know, 30, 40 years ago, that was just a drawer in the back room, right? right? You'd go grab all the memos related to that client or any of the documents that have been prepared and hand it over to the regulators. Now it's, there's obviously a lot more information, but also it's on a lot of devices and through a lot of systems that might be hard to track down. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely is and, and can be, um, it's something that the SEC is is focusing on. I mean, I can mm-hmm. tell you anecdotally, in investigations, they, they're asking for the text messages almost all the time, right? It's just now become a matter of course, right? I mean, yeah. I remember, I mean, when I was beginning my career, figuring out how to get emails was sometimes difficult. Like, how yeah. are we even going to capture all that information? Oh, my mm-hmm. God, there's how many thousands, let alone millions now? How are we going to, yeah. how are we going to look at all that? And people people would push back against the SEC and say like, well, do you really need that? And I feel like that's kind of where we are now, right? This yeah. is an obvious next place for the staff to go and, and they have every right to do that, right? That's why there are record keeping requirements in place. But we're, we're in that sort of, we're having those growing pains where everybody you know, on both sides are trying to figure out how to, how to grapple with this and everybody acknowledges that it's important. You know, I think for for the firms who who this obligation really falls on, right? The folks who are out there thinking like, how am I going to do this? In some respects, it's it's the same way you deal with with every new rulemaking requirement or proposal, right? How does this change my workflow, if at all? What do my policies and procedures do or say about this? How how do I know that my folks are adequately supervising or or training the folks that work for them to make sure they understand our rules and expectations and you know, if and when we find that someone inadvertently or otherwise has has violated that policy, like what are we doing to enforce it yeah. or to reinforce the expectation? And that's what firms should be doing right now if they haven't already. Again, I'm sure tons of firms have already addressed this, are mm-hmm. addressing this. But if not, you should really be thinking about it. Great. I'm looking forward. I'm sure they'll, you'll provide an update, much like I will, about uh, broad considerations for auditors on a future episode, Kurt. Yeah, absolutely. I will say, Chris, surprise, because I can't help myself. I actually have two other updates. <sighs> do we spin the wheel about. or do we just rock and roll? <laughs> it, there's only Kurt left on the wheel at this <laughs> at this point. <laughs> so check with that program you were using. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But don't worry, one of these one of these absolutely has an accounting angle. Okay. So you're 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 totally in play. And, and this just relates to to some of the SEC's rulemakings. You know, we've talked a bunch on the podcast about how Chair Gensler has a a robust regulatory agenda mm-hmm. and how the SEC has just kind of been like ticking through all these different rules that, that that have been on the agenda for a while now. You know, in the last couple of months alone, we've seen rules that amend the SEC's whistleblower rules, we've seen a proposed treasury clearing rule, we've seen a final electronic record keeping rule for for broker dealers and some yep. other firms. But on October 26th, you know, all of a sudden it was like the, the busiest day of the new fiscal <laughs> yeah. year at the SEC. There were there were three new rulemakings or proposals that that came out. And I wanted to touch on two of them in particular, but I also thought it was interesting because you get these three rulemakings or proposals on one day. With respect to each, every single commissioner gave a statement. Yeah. So we got 15 statements <laughs> in one day, which is a lot of reading for someone like me, right? When mm-hmm. you're trying to do your day job. That's but it's just right. really interesting. There is, There does seem to be a very public dialogue taking shape right now at the commission, which I think is interesting. We're getting a very clear sight into how the different commissioners, and in particular, the new commissioners are thinking about issues, thinking about their policy priorities. So I think I think it's great, but really interesting. So, like I said, I want to touch. I want to touch on two of them. One relates to executive compensation. Uh, the other relates to so-called outsourcing by hmm. investment advisors. All right. So, we'll start with the uh, with the executive compensation because this is where you get to come in and, and talk about some <laughs> some accounting y stuff. <laughs> so, this was a, a, a final rule on executive compensation clawbacks. This rule has been kicking around for quite a while. It was mandated by Dodd-Frank. An original rulemaking proposal was released all the way back in 2015, but was shelved until October 2021 when Chair Gensler put it back out for comment. And then we we finally got the, the final rule last week which was which passed 3 to 2 along along partisan lines uh, essentially this rule requires companies that that list and trade shares on US exchanges 
to adopt and comply with clawback policies that require companies to go in and pull back executive compensation if they have to do a restatement. If they do, essentially what they'll do is go back and say, if if we got it right the first time, right? If we didn't have to do a restatement, these are what the numbers would have looked like. Therefore, that's what the executive's compensation would have been, some kind of incentive-based compensation. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to pull back the delta. And I'm not going to go any deeper than that. There, there are nuances there in terms of time limiters and you yep. know ways that you can separate things out from that calculation. But that that's kind of the, the high-level idea. I think what was noteworthy, or that at least a lot of people were talking about, is that the the clawback policy must apply both to material accounting errors that require a restatement of prior year's financial results, right? So this is, I think you would call this the big R restatement, That's right? as well as errors that are corrected in the current year's results. And that is a, a little r restatement. So actually, Chris, why don't, why don't you tell me a little bit about big and little r restatements? Because I'll get it all wrong. Yeah, this is a popular topic and something that has really developed over the past maybe 10 or 15 years, right? A restatement, a big R restatement is a company acknowledging that there were significant or material errors, omissions, updates, and in the terms of financial statement fraud, right? You will have to restate your financials. And that basically means what we sent last year or three years ago should be ignored. It is incorrect enough that we need to completely prepare a new set of financial information. It needs to be audited on its own. And that restatement kind of erases history and creates mm-hmm. a new you know, new version of events or the correct version of events because of these significant issues. A big R restatement are some of the largest ones you've heard about in the past. The little r restatement is, is kind of a misnomer in that it's not a restatement to date, but it is the changing of specific financial items from prior years. And technically speaking, it is a difference in presentation of prior year financial information in a current year. So we're in 2022. The calendar year ends here, December 31st. Companies will issue their financial statements for the year ended December 31st, 2022. Part of their requirements under GAAP and and auditing under GAAS is to compare that to prior year's performance that might be you know mm-hmm. one single year for the the financial statements that we know well also in mdna they can do a, a longer a look back a little r restatement is taking that balance sheet from 2021 which was already issued and audited in in early 2021 say 10 10 months ago now and compare that to the 2022 balance sheet and you may now know that some of the information there may have been immaterial issues or errors that have happened you know that you've identified subsequent to the end of the year last year that you then correct you know you change a 105 to a 107 you know right for for mm-hmm. a specific number it is not deemed as a problem but in many cases disclosure needs to happen around why those numbers are changing what the issues around them are you're not erasing history and completely restating it you're just tweaking it which is why we get into this fun, you know, us accountants, we love our fun little word tricks, big R and little <laughs> R restatements for that. And so a lot of the discussion around this clawback rule comes about where that line is drawn. You know, there's been some great thought leadership out there, both from RSM and other firms, talking about the large digression in big R restatements in the accounting mm-hmm. world in the past 15 years. It used to be a lot more common, obviously, after Sarbanes-Oxley and the accounting scandals of the early 2000s, there was a focus on making sure things went back and got right. And there are there are still big R restatements that happen every year, yeah. but those are getting down into the single digits for, for you know the hundreds, if not thousands of companies that are listed versus these little R restatements, which if you're a cynic, you may think are negotiated between the auditor and management to make sure you don't have to issue a big R here. But again, we could do a whole podcast on big and little r restatements. I think the issue here, Kurt, is that this is really the commission attempting to solidify something that's actually already in practice for the majority of, you know, Fortune 500 companies, S&P 500 listed entities already have clawback provisions in their in their corporate bylaws, in their charters. And and I think everybody can agree that it might be fair that if a CFO is, is getting a significant bonus due to the financial performance of, of the business, and then the financial performance of the business is found out to be incorrect, right? That that CFO probably should not be awarded that bonus. I think the number was there's less than 10 S&P 500 companies that don't already have a clawback provision in their in their bylaws, in the way that they interact with their executives. So this is not something that's coming completely out of left field that's going to change the yeah. market. 
but it's something that now has a little bit of teeth from the commission's perspective for those executives who who may be you know doing things inappropriately or ending up with with a big R restatement that they may have to consider giving back that compensation. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue here is that. Um, you know, all of those companies would now be required to do that, right? Yep. And essentially the, the way it works is the rule <laughs> requires the exchanges themselves to create a rule that says, if you want to list and, and trade on our exchange, you have to have this type of rule, right? So mm -hmm. anybody that wants to trade here is going to have to have that, right? So those 10, they're, they're either not going to trade on the exchange, which I think yep. is not a viable option, or they're going to implement this kind of policy. And, you know, look, for, for Gary Gensler, he's saying this strengthens transparency, it, 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 it increases investor confidence, it enhances accountability of corporate executives, right? all the things you would expect him to say. On the other side, you know, Hester Peirce says, look, the idea is right. But the way we're doing it is just too prescriptive, mm -hmm. right? It's it's expansive. It's inflexible. It's sometimes impractical. And, I, and I'm guessing she would prefer the system that's in place, what you're describing, which is companies are already doing this. Mm -hmm. they're, they're figuring it out. Why do we need to kind of come in and second guess and say, you have to do it exactly this way? Yeah. So that, I think, is where the fault lines are on this particular rulemaking. But it passed. It's going to happen. So, you know, something something to follow for sure and, and something that may keep you a little bit busier. That's right. Always interested in those accounting topics. Kurt, talk to us a bit about this outsourcing. Again, we're doing air quotes here for all of us uh, right. not on the <laughs> just listening. Outsourcing <laughs> by investment advisors, Kurt. What, what came down on that fateful October day? Okay, so this is a proposed rulemaking. You know, I want to say it again, it's proposed, proposed. it's not final, yeah. it's not going into effect. Anyone that wants to issue a comment has until the end of December, I think it's December 27th, but check on the SEC's website. If you hate it, if you love it, you want to go in and comment, you should do that because it is important to the process. But essentially what this, this rule about outsourcing by investment advisors would prohibit registered investment advisors from outsourcing certain services and functions unless they do a certain amount of due diligence mm -hmm. and have in place policies to monitor those service providers you know, to whom they're sort of outsourcing those functions. They have to have those policies in place before they retain the, the service provider. I guess that would apply to a new one going forward, right? Whenever, whenever a final rule takes shape, folks will already have been doing this. So you got to put these policies in effect. What's interesting is the way that they sort of talk about what the advisors have to do, right? So they have to have these diligence and monitoring provisions in place with respect to any third party, any outsourced service provider that is providing a quote covered function. And that includes a, a function or service that is necessary to provide their advisory services. And if not performed or if performed negligently, would be reasonably likely to cause a material negative impact on the advisor's clients or on the advisor's ability to provide investment advisory services. That that could cover a lot of ground, frankly. To say it seems um, pretty general <laughs> in its description. It is not as prescriptive maybe as as Commissioner Purse yeah. feels the uh, the exec comp clawback issues are. Yeah, it can go. I mean, it can cover things like, you know, firms sometimes will outsource how, how they set their their nav, right? The net mm -hmm. asset value of whatever whatever it is that they're that they're trading off in a fund. Now you have to, you know, in theory, have some kind of enhanced monitoring for whoever it is that you outsource that function to. So it has the potential to be a big deal. The industry response wasn't great. Uh, for example, Karen Barr, who is the president and CEO of the Investment Advisors Association, she told Think Advisor that the rule is, quote, overly burdensome and prescriptive and fails to recognize how little leverage firms have over many service providers. She also noted that the rule is not adequately tailored to the range of firms it covers, including small advisors. And that, that seems to be a theme. In, yeah. in fact, again, all the commissioners <laughs> were given statements on these rules. Commissioner Ueda really focused on this idea that the rule or the proposal as written would have a disproportionately negative or harmful impact on small, small. advisors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that sort of, th that is the big criticism. You know, on the other side, Commissioners Crenshaw and, and Lizarraga both 
applauded the proposal and they described it in terms of enhancing investor protections. Commissioner Lizarraga had a, a, a long quote. I won't read it, but you know, the the point is we need to make sure that these types of protections are in place because the marketplace is changing, because the types of service providers that exist are changing, because investment advisors are doing this more for a host of reasons. And we don't want to prevent them from doing it, but we need to make sure there are adequate safeguards and monitoring in place. So as I said, um, some people love it, some people hate it. Comments are due in December, but it's one of the things that I know we'll be keeping an eye on. Excellent. Well, Kurt, we've covered a few hot topics from the past, basically, you know, five, six weeks, right? A lot, like you said, has yeah. happened in, in the new fiscal year here for the commission and, and a lot of what we cover. But we've also got some great things coming up in the short term from PLI, as well as yes. on our future episodes. The first and most prescient is that when this episode airs, the 54th Institute on Securities Regulation will be happening in New York City from the Practicing Law Institute. So hopefully <laughs> many of you have signed up. If you have not, you may be able to log in as a preferred member and, and see some of that content here on Thursday and Friday this week. It runs from November 2nd to the 4th, covering everything you could want from a, from a securities regulatory perspective, new SEC priorities in the regulatory environment, disclosure challenges related to climate, supply chain, and China-based issuers, every that you need to know for proxy season coming up this year, as well as, Kurt, my favorites, accounting and auditing developments that companies, audit committees, and council need to know. So if you haven't yet signed, <laughs> that's right, if you haven't yet signed <laughs> up for the 54th Annual Institute on Securities Regulation, go over to pli.edu and you can find that program pretty quickly. All right. Well, Chris, hey, I really enjoyed this episode today. As you said, we've got some good stuff coming up. We always cover the SEC's annual enforcement report and annual whistleblower report. We're expecting those right around the corner. I'm going to see you in just a couple of weeks at the Securities Enforcement Forum in D.C. I know mm -hmm. we'll have some some takeaways from that or, yeah. or some trends to discuss. So lots to look forward to this fall, but really enjoyed just talking with you for a change today, buddy. Hopefully our listeners did too. We'll, we'll get some feedback on that, I'm sure. <laughs> If you're still here, hit us up on, on social media, <laughs> hashtag InsecuritiesPod, say, I'm with you guys. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.